It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with multiple experts, league champion, and fantasy baseball legal expert Glenn Colton next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, May the 6th, show number 31 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with multiple experts league champion and fantasy legal expert Glenn Colton about how to work with a partner, the legal status of short-term fantasy formats, extreme strategies, and of course, facts and flukes. We'll also have commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about hit percentage for batters. And in the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com analyst Rob Gordon talks about Giants outfield prospect Brandon Nimmo. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout Edition of Baseball HQ Radio. So what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And we open our Tuesday Tout Edition, as always, with our feature expert interview with multiple experts league champion and fantasy legal expert, Glenn Colton. Glenn, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Uh, it's an honor to be on this award-winning podcast, Patrick. Well, thank you very much for saying so. It's very nice of you. Uh, I always like to start off by asking, Glenn, uh, how are your expert leagues teams doing? Well, you know, we're actually doing pretty well. Uh, Rick Wolf and I play in uh, both Labor AL and NL, and uh, also in the Tout Wars AL League and the FSTA League. And right now we are uh, winning in uh, Tout Wars AL, very competitive in the FSTA and Labor NL, and should climb a little bit in the Labor AL uh, once Miguel Cabrera turns into Miguel Cabrera. Which, uh, which players are really helping you across the board? Two guys, uh, I would say, have been huge for us. One is Frankie Rodriguez, who has just not only been unbelievable for the $1 he cost in Labor NL, but we spent $27 on Aroldis Chapman and Bobby Parnell to get zero saves so far, and Frankie Rodriguez has really been uh, you know, a godsend. And over in the AL, uh, Albert Pujols has been just great. You know, we followed our rules of engagement of, you know, taking a great player who's got some injury concerns or some age concerns and discounting him by 20%. We did that. We landed Pujols, and I think we're going to get a 20 to even maybe 30% profit on that investment. Just so I understand it, your, your approach is that if you have a player that normally would be worth $30, you discount him based on the injury risk and so forth, knock off 6 bucks, uh, and if you get him for around 24 then you're happy, and in this case it worked out. That's exactly right. You know, you can't pay full value for a guy who hasn't produced full season value for a couple of years. You're, uh, you really can't make a profit that way. Yeah, it makes sense. I remember a few years ago, we had a guy in my American League-only home league who dropped out of the league for a couple of years because of work. He was traveling all over the world, and then he realized when he's spending his nights in Abu Dhabi or someplace like that in the hotel, you know, you can only watch so much porn, and then uh, after a while you want to have something to do with your time. And he realized that having a fantasy team back would be the ideal way to go. And uh, so we, he came back into the league, but he had an expansion team, and he won the league, and it was entirely by taking guys like Brian Roberts, who were injury risks, and, and nobody wanted them because of that. And luckily for him, they all panned out, and he ended up uh, scooping the league in his first year. It was an excellent uh, approach to managing risk. Don't, don't you think, Glenn, sometimes when we talk about risk management in fantasy baseball roster construction, that too many people take it to mean avoid risk at all costs rather than figure out what the risk is, price it in, and act accordingly? No, I think that's exactly right, Patrick. And, you know, when we talk about, Rick and I, our rules of engagement, and we say, you know, injured players tend to get injured, it doesn't mean never draft Evan Longoria or Albert Pujols or, or, or something like that. It simply means never pay full value for those guys. But obviously, if the price comes down far enough, you have to be ready to pounce. And uh, that's what we did on Pujols, and knock on wood, so far so good. 
Yeah, of course, you have, still have to be worried that plantar fasciitis has been uh, the the bane of many, uh, especially power hitters' existence over the years. Remember, McGuire ended up uh, losing his career with it, and, and guys like that. But the but what I like about that approach is that you know what the upside is, and all you need to realize it is for the injury not to to return, or for it for the player not to get injured to the same extent that he has in previous years, and that really is not a bad bet. Oh, no, I, I agree with you, and I think that you know you also have to get away from the numbers a little bit and, and think about who the player is. A guy like Albert Pujols, who's incredibly proud, incredibly hardworking, um, you know, is a better bet, let's say, to uh, beat the injury bug than someone, let's say, like Jose Reyes, who seems to only have beat the injury bug in a contract year. Yeah, and uh, you also want to know a little bit about the the nature of the injuries and so forth. I'm curious about Frankie Rodriguez. When you got him, you got him at the draft for a buck, you said, and I'm wondering why did you target him or did you target him? Was that a target of convenience at the time? No, what we, what we wanted to do is go after guys, you know, after our main starters and after our, you know, closer to get guys who were the number two, who have a history of putting up good ratios, who could vulture wins and who could become the closer because they're behind someone who has not got a lengthy track record. Now, I'm not going to tell you I'm so smart to know that Jim Henderson was going to lose the job before opening day, but he surely was a guy who was far more at risk than, let's say, a Sergio Romo or, you know, an Aroldis Chapman or somebody who had a greater track record. So we targeted those types of guys, uh, and with Rodriguez, it really worked out. Uh, Glenn, you mentioned that you and Rick Wolf have been operating as a team. I know you've been doing that for a long time and in a lot of leagues, and we've talked about it on the show before, but we get a lot of new listeners, and I'd like you to briefly revisit this topic, starting off with how did you uh, get started and how long have you been working as a partner with Rick? Well, Rick and I know each other way back when uh, from college before cell phones and fax machines and even the Internet. But uh, Rick has been a fixture, of course, in the fantasy sports business uh, way back way, you know, went to CBS Sportsline to uh, Prodigy, and he was playing in the labor leagues, uh, doing well, but he had never won. And in uh, 2002, he, he said to me, hey, you know, we should partner up. If we play in the labor league together, we, we can win this thing. So I thought it was a great opportunity. I've been playing fantasy baseball for about 13 years or so then. And we drove down to the USA Today headquarters in, in Virginia and played in a league with the great John Hunt and Ron Chandler and others and uh, ended up winning that labor league. We went back the next year. We ended up winning the labor AL league for the second time in a row. And all of a sudden, uh, we became fixtures and, and joined it at the proverbial hip in fantasy baseball. Is it a case that, like most great partnerships, that your skills are complementary, and do you recognize that in how you divide up the work and divide up the responsibilities? Yeah, no, absolutely. Rick is more a little bit more of a stat head than I am. Uh, I, I understand the numbers, but he's much more into the numbers and running the analysis, and I'm much more touchy-feely and, and watching things and taking soft data. And together, I think that leads to a better product overall. And also... Once, a, once we make a team decision, it is a team decision. We always say to each other, you know, no I in team. Um, so it doesn't matter if I wanted to start, uh, you know, pitcher X and he gave up nine runs in two innings. He doesn't say, that was your fault. You picked that guy. We never, ever do that, and it avoids a lot of problems that way. A lot of problems, but probably not every problem. Can you remember a time when uh, the partnership... Um, struggled for want of a better term and and I wonder because that happens with a lot of guys who try to be partners and how did you get through it you know I have to say we've really never struggled we've disagreed on you know all kinds of things but then once we come to a decision whether I get my way or he gets his way or, or some uh, mixture or hybrid it just becomes the group decision and that's the end of it um, so we really haven't struggled too much. And the other thing is, over time, we've developed our smart system and our rules of engagement. And these are things that we follow religiously. So we really don't deviate from our critical precepts, our, our critical principles, and it helps us avoid disagreements. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, having rules. Does either of you play uh, as a solo artist, as it were? Yeah, I mean, Rick does a bunch of, uh, you know, 
the daily leagues and, and, and other types of newfangled games being, you know, one of the critical fantasy executives in, in, in the business world. I play in my home league by myself, and I also, uh, with Rick's uh, permission, partner up in fantasy baseball in the NFBC with Nate Ravitz from ESPN. Uh, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, a lot, it's a lot of fun because Nate, of course, is a great guy and a great fantasy player, but also very different in his approach from Rick or from me, and it really is very interesting and a lot of fun to sort of pursue different types of strategies and talk with someone who just views it very differently uh, than I'm used to viewing it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton, a longtime champion in partnership with Rick Wolf, also on Sirius XM Radio. You mentioned that Rick is playing in uh, these shorter-term daily games, and I've been asking our experts about these new shorter-term games, daily games especially, but now we're also seeing monthly leagues starting to come on stream at Chandler Park, Ron's site. Do you play any of these games, either solo or, or combined? And I wonder what your general thoughts are on games that have a shorter time span. Well, I personally have not started really playing, largely because I'm in six uh, season-long leagues, five of which are, are, are expert or high-stake leagues, um, and have, of course, a full-time legal career that takes up most of my time. But I do think that the daily leagues, that Ron's monthly concept, um, are really great ideas because there should be variety of different types of games and contests and ways in which people who love baseball, love fantasy baseball, can participate. So I am all for it. Uh, I think done right and most, most companies do do it right, it really is a great addition to the, to the landscape. I'd also like to touch on the possibility of regulation of these shorter-term games, which I know is always in the back of the minds of the people in the business. And you're the guy to ask. You have a background in the legal issues surrounding fantasy baseball. And by way of laying a foundation for our listeners, uh, maybe you could start by explaining your involvement in the legal issues that really could have affected fantasy baseball badly in its early days. That was a very difficult and, and exciting at the same time time for uh, fantasy baseball back in around 2005-2006. Um, MLBAM uh, took the position and did, as did the Players Association that fantasy baseball sites had to pay a licensing fee to use the names of, fantasy, of baseball players in their fantasy games. Um, the fantasy industry thought that was incorrect uh, and while they were willing to make a deal. No deal ever happened, and the case went to litigation. And I represented, along with my firm at the time, the FSTA, the Fantasy Sport Trade Association, in court, and argued basically that uh, the First Amendment protects the use of player names, and also that the right of publicity, what they call it, didn't uh, give the players a right to prevent the fantasy sites from using their names. Fortunately, uh, the FSTA and CDM, which brought that case, won that case. It opened up a whole new era of expansion in fantasy sports, which is great for all of our listeners and all of the people we play with. Um, and that issue's basically sort of gone to the side. And as you alluded to, the issue of you know gambling law and uh, short-term games has now come to the fore, though I'm sure you're going to ask me, so I'll jump into it. Uh, fantasy sports is a game of skill. It is not gambling, and I'm happy to explain why. <laughs> well, I know you spoke at the FSTA's legal panel recently about what is called the Coalition to Stop Internet Gambling. Maybe you can first bring our listeners up to speed on what is the coalition and who is the coalition to stop internet gambling, and what potential does it have to affect fantasy baseball? Sure. I mean, this is you know a bit of a complex issue, but in essence, there have been some developments in the federal law, where the Justice Department took the position that the main law that prevents uh, gambling is really designed only for sports betting. So states have said, okay, we're going to offer internet gambling just within or intra our state. There are casino owners, it's mostly Sheldon Adelson from what I understand, who want to stop basically states from doing that and stop internet gambling and they're pushing Congress to adopt a bill to do that. Fortunately, from the fantasy sports industry, though of course the industry must be uh, vigilant, the draft of the bill that has been put out keeps what is we call the safe harbor that exists in the current federal law, which basically says that if certain key uh, requirements are met, that fantasy sports are a game of skill, 
They're not bets or wagers, and therefore are not illegal gambling. And I think that that should stay the law. I think it will stay the law. But of course, it bears watching. I've heard that argument, and I wonder if some of the other expert people I've talked to about the issue uh, have the have the general feeling or the impression that as you shorten the time span of the game, you start moving along a continuum away from skill and towards chance, and and by chance, you are really talking about gambling. And I know that the poker people say that poker is a game of skill as well, although the because in the long run the best players will win but in the short run they don't necessarily win because there's a there's a fairly significant element of chance involved and i'm wondering is there any concern in the fantasy sports industry that some legislator some regulator somebody somewhere is going to look at this and say yeah if you're playing 14 hitters and 9 pitchers over 162 games that's a test of skill because it's a long time frame but if you're just picking a, a team that lasts one night, not so much. Well, I mean, there's certainly a concern that someone could say that. And I, and I think there's the key thing to remember here is how much skill is involved doesn't necessarily deal with how long a season you have. How many decisions do you have to make? How many factors do you have to consider? How many players are you playing? How many statistics? Uh, you know, to use a simple example, if you played a season-long game that just measured home runs for hitters and wins for pitchers, as opposed to a daily game that measured 16 different statistics, I don't think we'd have a hard time arguing that the 16 statistics are harder to measure than the two and therefore require more skill. So it really is, you know, putting all the factors together. How many players, how many uh, issues do you have to consider? And remember, in a daily game, there are things you have to consider that you don't have to consider in a season-long game. Weather is a huge issue you know, in a daily game. How a player you know, does in particular weather really matters. How a player does night or day really matters. Whereas over 162 games, obviously, not that critical. So at the end of the day, I come out saying that the daily game is absolutely a skill game done right. And it's just a question of making sure that the public and uh, those in power, regulators, uh, legislators, are educated properly to understand that. And how about the possibility that some state government looks at it as they do at a lot of other uh, gaming sources, shall we say, as a, as a possibility to pick up some e easy tax money? That is, if you're running a fantasy baseball game somewhere in the state, or federally, if it's an interstate game, that the federal government might look at it and say, you know what, let's, let's slap a surtax on this of some kind. Well, you know, look, th these things are certainly possible, but I've not heard of that being floated at this point in time. Well, if, they, if there's a government out there that isn't looking at gambling and, and gaming revenue, uh, that's a new story, I think. Uh, Glenn, you have a regular column at FantasyAlarm.com that's called The Week That Was, looking at player performance. And a few days ago, you had what I thought was a really interesting comment about Diane Viciedo. He's off to a great start, and we'll talk about facts and flukes later in the show. But please tell our listeners about this comment that you made, that Viciedo is an example of a fantasy truism or maxim. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people sort of discounted him, saying, all right, here's a guy who's just swing from the heels, and um, he's never going to hit for a decent average, and uh, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, people forget that when players make the major leagues at a young age, he made the major leagues at 21 years of age, they are not at their peak. They, they physically, they're not at their peak. They're not have their experience peak. And it takes a couple of years and probably 800 to 1,000 uh, at-bats to get to, to the next level, if you will. So with Viciedo, he's, here's a guy that had about 1,000 at-bats or a little more uh, coming into this season and was pigeonholed as this sort of 15-homer, 250 type of guy. What I saw was a guy who must be very talented because he made the majors young, shown some power already, shown some ability uh, to hit, and had a real chance of, of quote, taking it to the next level. So far, uh, that's proven prescient. It has, and uh, I remember doing a couple of years ago a, re uh, a research article for BaseballHQ.com in the Batting Buyer's Guide column that I was doing at the time that likewise set 800 plate appearances as kind of the threshold point 
that you wanted to get a guy who had shown promise in the subsequent season after he reached 800 plate appearances and it had a really good track record. And for that reason, I'm kind of sad that I missed out on Diane Vicieto because I had him last year and he wasn't that great. Uh, Rick, how much major league time do you think is enough for you to start feeling confident that you have a handle on player potential? You remembered that you mentioned that uh, 800 to 1,000 plate appearance threshold. What about for pitchers? Yeah, I think pitchers, the innings is more is harder to measure in that context because, um, you know, the plate appearance is really in control. You start a game as a hitter, you tend to get four or five plate appearances in a game. A pitcher, it really varies a lot with, uh, you know, workload and game situations and things of that nature. So I like to see a pitcher who's pitched three to four years uh, in the major leagues before we get a handle on it. And you can really look at, again, guys who make the major leagues at 26 or 27, they'll take less time to hit whatever their performance uh, level is. But guys who make the major leagues 22, 21, 23 will take a few years to hit their performance level. And I'd say probably three years in the major leagues. Doug Dennis, a while ago at BaseballHQ.com, wrote that you were actually thinking about using the Labradini plan at Tout Wars, the $9 pitching staff idea. Uh, was that serious? And uh, if it was, why didn't you do it? No, it's funny. Uh, Doug, of course, is a great fantasy player and a great writer uh, on your Baseball HQ site. But what I was talking to Doug about was thinking about doing that in my home league where we play strikeout to walk instead of strikeouts which makes oh. it easier to find uh, you know, quality middle relievers and, and set up guys who will give you the type of strikeout to walk that you'd have to pay a, you know, a lot of money for a starter to get that kind of strikeout. We did, though, go very uh, hitting heavy in Tout Wars AL, not quite Labradini, but we went $200 on hitting in Tout Wars AL. So we uh, hedged a little bit, but that's a pretty heavy hitting budget and really concentrated on these types of young pitchers who are in their you know, third or, or, or fourth year in the major leagues who had the ability to really go to the next level. And so far that's worked out very nicely. And Doug, in the, in the column that he wrote, noted that there was a disagreement about whether the Labradini plan or any kind of extreme um, hitting budget plan is more workable in a shallow league, like a 12- or 15-team mixed, versus a deep league, like a 12-team single league format. And I wonder what side of, the, of that issue do you come down on? Yeah, I don't think it can work in a shallow league. I think it's only in a deep league where you can dominate the categories by going heavy on one side and where you have to, no matter what your budgets are, take flyers, take part-time players, et cetera, in a, take middle relievers in a deep league. In a 12-team mix, 13-team mix, there's so much talent that I think going too heavy on one side simply is not going to work. Well, the, the uh, devil's advocate says, what about the idea that by, because there's so many more fungible pitchers in the free agent pool that it makes more sense to go with the cheap pitching uh, idea in, in the shallower league because as they flop, you can e- more easily replace them than if they flop in a, in a deep league where your free agent choices are much more limited. Well, I mean, I certainly see the argument, Patrick, but my concern is that there are dominant pitchers. And if you're in a 12-team league, mixed league, then all your other competitors are going to have two or maybe even three dominant pitchers. If you don't have those, it is awfully difficult to find enough strikeouts, enough ratios, enough wins to stay competitive. Whereas in a 12-team NL or 12-team AL, you're lucky if you have one dominant pitcher and maybe having none versus your opponent having one is something you can overcome. Excellent point. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton, a longtime Experts League champion, a multiple champion with his partner Rick Wolf. And uh, Glenn, during the season, we always ask our experts to talk about some facts and flukes among player performance. It's especially interesting in the early going, of course, because we have so many outliers. Uh, I've talked in the last couple of weeks about Charlie Blackman in Colorado. And uh, before I get started on the guys I really want to talk with you about, what do you make of Charlie Blackman? You know, good for him and good for all those people that, uh, you know, believed. But I need to see more. I mean, here's a guy who has no track record of putting up that kind of uh, power, that kind of speed in the minors or the majors. And I think he's 
got a team that's hitting. It's, it's floating everybody higher. But at the end of the day, if I had the opportunity in a single uh, season league to trade high on Charlie Blackman, I would absolutely do it. Speaking of Colorado hitters, I have Justin Morneau on my Tout Mix team, one of the few highlights, I should say. He's been a big profit, $30 worth of production so far, six homers, 22 RBIs as we speak. 381 on base percentage hasn't hurt either. He's been a uh, most valuable player winner in the past, but the last few years are not encouraging. So when you look at Justin Morneau, do you see a hot start that is a fact, or does it feel like a fluke? I think this hot is, is a fluke, and you know, getting into the numbers you could see that there are some outliers that are going to correct. So far, he's got a 367 uh, batting average on balls in play as compared to a under 300 career, which means there's a correction coming in the batting average. And this year, his walk rate is way down, which means that at some point, pitchers are going to start to exploit that free-swinging way. In my mind, I think you can count on Morneau, assuming he stays healthy, to do what he's done in the last couple of years, maybe a little higher because of cores, maybe 20 homers, 80 ribbies type of season. But if there's somebody out there willing to pay for, you know, the 36 homer, 130 ribby pace that he's on right now, I'd sell. Melky Cabrera of Toronto has five home runs. He's hitting 347, even has a few bags, almost 30 bucks worth himself. Here's a guy who has a different kind of issue in his past, of course, the PED uh, controversy that struck him when he was suspended, uh, do you think this resurgent performance could be a fact, or does it look more like a fluke? Oh, I think this is a fact. But full disclosure, I am a unabashed Melky fan and have been for years. Uh, you have to get into a couple of critical issues with Melky. First of all, last year he played the year with a fist on his spine, sapped him of his, of, of his strength, his ability to run, etc. And this year he's healthy. He's playing in a great hitter's park in a very good lineup, in the American League East, where when you go on the road, it's launching pads like Yankee Stadium, Fenway, Camden, etc. And he's only 29 years old, and this is, again, our credo. He made the majors at 20. So at 29, he's been in the major leagues 10 years, has tremendous talent, and really is in a great situation to continue to hit. Will he get 240 hits this year? Probably not. But if he stays healthy, can he get 200 hits? I think the answer is yes. Yeah, it's sometimes hard to imagine that Melky Cabrera is only 29. It seems like he's been around since uh, Hank Aaron, and uh, and yet, as you say, he's he's a, he's still a young man. And and in the modern game of baseball, we used to say that the peak was over at 32 or 33. I think now we can safely say that a lot of guys their peak will go on till 35, 36. So plenty of time left to run for Melky Cabrera. We talked earlier, Glenn, about how long a guy needs to be in the majors to feel confident about our perceptions, and I'm wondering. How much of it of that is true of changes in performance? And the reason I ask is I'm looking at Josh Donaldson. He had a huge breakout last year, and he seems to have picked up right where he left off. He's at $28 so far this year, seven homers, 22 RBIs. He's even hitting 274. So is there any chance that this is actually a fluke, or does his breakout last year make you more confident that it's a fact, even though it's only one data point? I think it's a is he going to be a solid player for the A's and a solid player for your fantasy team? I think probably. But take a look at his minor league record. He's never never had uh, 20 homers in AAA, even though he played two full years in the PCL. Never hit 300 in any level uh, for a full season before last year. And all of a sudden, he's got over 20 homers and a 300 average in the major leagues in a pitcher's park. That leads me to believe that there could be a correction coming for Josh Donaldson. The only reason that I think it may be that this can be sustainable is he was a catcher for a good portion of his minor league career and now has been relieved of the tools of ignorance. And that may be the reason why his hitting has just improved so dramatically. Right now, I'm betting on somewhere in between uh, what he did last year and what he would have been projected to do last year. Kind of in that same vein, uh, Colorado third baseman Nolan Arenado was, I'll call him a cautious favorite among fantasy writers coming into this season, and he's certainly lived up to that. 22 bucks so far, he's got four home runs, his batting average is above 500, but he's still young, and he's still really inexperienced at the major league level. So is he a fact or a fluke? How do you judge? I think you're going to see some fall off from where he is. This is one of those players that, 
if I'm building a major league team, I want him. You know, I want him for the long term. He's a great fielder, uh, hits to, to all fields, uh, shows a lot of ability. But in a one-year fantasy league, he has half a season of a track record in the major leagues, and that's not enough for me to pay full value. And there are reasons to be concerned that there is a correction coming. Uh, his walk rate is under 3%, which is really very low. And pitchers will start to, I think, exploit uh, some of that free swinging. And his BABIP is 30 points above his uh, career, which says there may be some correction coming as well. He's still very young. I don't think he's developed all the power he will get at 25 years old or 26 years old. So if I had to guess, I would say something on, you know, in the low 270s with 15 homers and gold glove play is what you're going to get by the time the season ends. Looking at some underperforming hitters now, Glenn, I traded for Yunel Escobar in the offseason in my AL-only league because it's a keeper league and there was a real shortage of shortstops and I didn't want to end up having to pay a ton of money for a borderline guy. And it looks like I might have made a blunder there because Escobar, he, he looks lackadaisical out there as always and his results are really terrible. Minus $14 by BaseballHQ.com standards. He's only hitting two twenty. He's got a single home run, a couple of RBIs and no bags. Is this horrendous performance by Yunel Escobar a fact or a fluke? I think it's a fluke. I don't think he's a superstar by any stretch of the imagination, but you know the Babbitt's way down. The team itself is not performing. This is a guy who's got a you know who's at his level where he's not going to go up or down much uh, at his current age, and he's pretty much a 250 to 260, 10 homer, five steal kind of guy. And it would not surprise me to see the Rays play a lot better baseball before the year is over. Though as a Yankee fan, I hope not, uh, and see Escobar go get to the level that you expected, which is palatable but hardly delicious. A lot of touts had hopes for Will Venable in San Diego, who's kind of hinted at some pretty good talent, but he's uh, at minus $14 as well, no homers, three ribbies, and he's barely over 200 Fact or fluke on Will Venable? I don't think he could be this bad unless there's an injury, which I'm very worried about. The fact that he's not you know, hitting for power is not a big surprise. Uh, having a power outburst at 31 years of age in Petco Park you know, surely had to have people scratching their heads. But so far in the first month of the season, no steals. That tells me there may be something wrong with him, because why wouldn't he be running? So I'd be very concerned about, about Will Venable this year. Yeah, especially since there's been no organizational change where they would that might explain an unwillingness to run. I agree with you. I think there's a, there may be a hidden injury here we're going to find about sooner or later. Uh, Glenn, like you, I like players who've been uh, acquired by smart organizations. I also like players who've been unfairly downgraded by touts and experts because of injury issues. When I looked at Peter Burjos coming into this year, it looked like he was in both camps, and instead of bouncing back and having a big year with a good team, he's, what, about 160, no homers, two RBIs, and only two bags and two runs. Otherwise, he'd uh, even be worse than minus seven bucks. Were the Cardinals wrong about Peter Burjos? Is this a fact or a fluke? Yeah, honestly, Patrick, I know that listeners don't want to hear this, but I honestly don't know. Now, part of my concern is the team up and down the lineup is not hitting. Uh, other than Yadi Molina, I think pretty much the team is not hitting. So that's hurt Borjos and others, I think, a lot. The reason that I stayed away from Borjos is because the risk of a slow start for him was so much greater than other players because of the existence of John Jay, because Oscar Tavares is lurking uh, you know, down at AAA, and other players lurking down at AAA the risk of, of drafting a Borges was much higher because if he got off to the slow start that he has, he was going to lose his job. So while he's a better player, I think, than he has played so far, it's not clear to me he's going to regain that job anytime soon. And finally, J.J. Uh, Hardy has been one of the most reliable players for the last many years in a fantasy perspective. Again, not a superstar, but certainly a very productive guy. But this year he's at minus six bucks. He's yet to hit a home run. He's hitting just over 240. Is this a fact and the beginning of the end, or is it a fluke and there's some upside in them old legs yet? I think this is like Will Venable. I think the injury situation is probably worse than we're being led to believe. This is a guy who's in a contract year. He has every reason in the world to get out on the field, every reason in the world to, you know, to push through it. And if he is uh, unable to get on the field, which has happened a bunch, and then not producing, I think the injury is likely worse than we're being led to believe. And... 
I don't think he's done, but I think you may see a substantial layoff uh, for J.J. Hardy as uh, things move forward. I hope not, of course, for his sake. So not a buy-low candidate either. Yeah, I don't think so. And especially, you have to remember that he's a counting numbers guy, right? He's not a, a good average guy. So you, he's a guy like a, you know, Matt Carpenter or uh, Martin Prado or Danny Murphy, who you really need to get 650, 700 plate appearances to get the counting numbers. Um, those guys hit for better average than Hardy. But Hardy's a guy you need on the field, because if he's not on the field, you're not getting the average or the counting numbers, and that becomes a real drain on the value. Moving on to the pitcher's mound, let's look at some overperformers. It seems like all Johnny Cueto had to do to improve was not be on my tout team. He was last year, and of course he was a, a dud, had injuries, he was too awful. This year he's on some other guy's team. He's $38 so far, 50 strikeouts and 47 innings. He looks fantastic out there. Is Johnny Cueto's great performance a fact or a fluke? I think the great performance is a fact. Whether he can stay healthy through 220 or 230 innings is something that I highly doubt. This is a guy who's only thrown 200 innings once. And this is where you have to get behind the numbers and actually look at the player. He's a shorter, more slight pitcher who throws very hard with strain you know, on the body and the way in which he delivers. So if it's me... Uh, and Johnny Cueto is still hot come you know Memorial Day. I think very seriously about cashing out. I suspect I know the answer to this one, but Jason Hamill of the Cubs, never any kind of uh, big fantasy asset, has four wins through Wednesday and a ERA around two and a whip under point seven. Could this possibly be a fact? Let me phrase it that way. You know, I, I think it could be. I have to tell you, Patrick, you know, I'm very puzzled. I watched, uh, I was in uh, in. Uh, Arizona uh, in the middle of March, saw actually Hamill pitch against the Texas Rangers and didn't love what I saw. Now, I don't claim to be, you know, Leo Mazzoni or anything like that, but he didn't really look sharp, uh, you know, toward the middle end of spring training. But on the other hand, he's looked great so far, and there is a situation where pitchers who go from the American League to the National League do see a jump in performance. Um, he's gone from the American League East to the, you know, NL Central, which means he's facing weaker lineups, facing the pitcher, which is a great help. So I think there's possibility for Hamill. But on the other hand, you're looking at a guy with an ERA of 2, 2.08, and, and a fifth fielding independent pitching of 4.12, which means that there's been some significant luck and some potential correction coming Hamill's way that fantasy owners are not going to be loving. Yeah, and I see him in the National League Central, and I think, oh boy, the Reds can hit, the Cardinals are going to start hitting sooner or later. It turns out Milwaukee can really hit. I don't like Jason Hamill's chances a lot. But speaking of the Brewers, how about Kyle Loesch? Nobody believes in Kyle Loesch ever, and yet here he is also with four wins. He's 270-105. Looks pretty good out there. Kyle Loesch, again, any chance this is a fact? Oh, I think this is a fact. I think this is what he is. Good ratios, decent wins, fairly low Ks. And I think it's the Ks that keep his value down and keep him off the, quote, sexy list of starting pitchers. But Kyle Loesch is exactly the kind of guy you want as your you know, SP3, SP4 type of guy behind your strikeout pitchers because he really bolsters the ratios and does it year in and year out. And finally, I have to ask you about Frankie Rodriguez. K-Rod has 13 saves, has yet to give up an earned run, uh, only .69 for a whip, 23 strikeouts as well in 16 innings. That's nice. Is this a blast from the past a fact or a fluke? I know you're hoping it's a fact. I, I think it's a fact. He he's looked very sharp. He's had pretty darn good numbers over his career. This is not all of a sudden a guy who's for the first time ever throwing good ratios. He's not That's that right, old. yeah. The Brewers are a hot team, and there's just no reason for them uh, to want to go to Jim Henderson, who's you know also sort of a journeyman type who got the closer role. Henderson's a perfectly nice pitcher, but it's not like they're holding on to a uh, major first-round draft pick that they're dying to get into the closer role or major free agent signing. They're going to be perfectly happy running Frankie out there uh, every day, and I think 30-plus saves is going to happen. Yeah, so much of it is just the role, and as long as he keeps producing at all, he's going to keep the role, and they're going to win games. Uh, I like Frankie Rodriguez a lot, and I wish I'd have been smart as you were to grab him when I could have. Uh, on the underperforming pitcher side, Clay Buchholz of the Red Sox was one of those sleeper candidates as a comeback pitcher after some hints last year that he might be snapping out of whatever was ailing him, but his uh, ERA, a devilish 666, 175 whip, 
they don't look so great and they don't inspire much confidence. Is this a fact or a fluke? Well, I think it's probably a fact, and this is another one of those situations where here's a pitcher who's hurt often and you know, could very well be masking some kind of additional injury. But this is a situation, right, where you could not have paid full value for Clay Buckholz, a guy who does not pitch full seasons at top levels. Did, did anyone expect 666? You know, of course not. Uh, but I think I'd be very worried about Clay Buckholz pitching in the AL East against that competition uh, in those parks. This is a guy I'd, be, I'd have on my reserve roster if I was allowed to reserve him and, and, and sort of wait it out till I saw some sign of life. The Tampa Bay Rays were pressed into using Jake Odorizzi a little earlier than they wanted to, and he's responded with a series of stinkers and semi-stinkers. This is another very young guy. Is, is he a fact at this poor level, or is he a fluke with some upside for this year? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a fact that he's not going to be anything special this year. It, one of the things that we, Rick and I, like to look for in younger pitchers are guys that throw hard. It's one thing when you have someone with three or four years of a major league record, like we've talked about during the show. But when you have somebody who's, you know, throwing barely 90, who hasn't really put up major league strikeout numbers, the margin for error is so little. And when you're a veteran Wiley pitcher and you have your control, you can maybe get around that. But when you're not throwing very hard, it is really hard to sustain, uh, you know, success. Remember, even the great Greg Maddox in 19... 19- 87 in his first year went 6 and 14 with a 6 something ERA. So it's very hard uh, when you don't throw hard to be successful in your first turn through the major leagues. And digging a little deeper for all of our listeners who are in those deep American League leagues, the Twins have a reliever, Jared Burton, who started the year as a pretty attractive pick in deep leagues because he seemed to be the next in line for when they traded their closer, Glenn Perkins, which seemed semi inevitable because the team was not going to be that good. Uh, but so far, Burton has nine earned runs in nine innings, and he looks more like waiver fodder than he does like uh, the kind of guy that you want to have on your roster. Is this horrible uh, opening performance by Jared Burton a fact or a fluke? I think the horrible performance is probably a fact. You have a, a, you have a guy with a 9 ERA and a low BABIP. That really speaks to a substantial implosion. Um, and, by the way, his fastball velocity, average fastball velocity down over two miles an hour, that points to some worry. But Patrick, you know, one of the things I think fantasy players need to look at is is the roster construction of the real-world teams. Now, you're right, of course, Perkins is a solid closer and a guy who could be traded, but Burton by no means was the number two guy. They have a guy named Casey Fien, or Fine, I apologize for not, to Casey for not knowing how to say that, but that's a guy who put up, you know, over 10 strikeouts per nine last year and really was going to, at a minimum, challenge for, if not be, uh, the number two reliever in that bullpen. So when you go and fish for that number two guy in a bullpen, make sure that you know he is the number two guy. It's always a little hard to tell with Minnesota, though. They, they move around uh, quite a bit. It's, it is a moving target. Uh, Glenn, this has been great. Uh, thanks very much for talking with us. Uh, tell us, please, where listeners can get more from Glenn Colton. Sure, absolutely. Well, every Tuesday night from 10 p.m. to midnight Eastern time on Sirius XM, Fantasy Sports Radio, Colton the Wolfman with Rick Wolf and me. Uh, we take your fantasy baseball questions, do our fantasy baseball features, uh, and of course do football during the football season. That's Sirius 210, XM 87. And you'll also find me on FantasyAlarm.com doing the week that was and, and some special columns. And of course, uh, you know, appearing here and there on uh, shows where people are gracious enough to let me talk a little fantasy baseball, like on this fabulous show with you, Patrick. And do you have a Twitter feed? I do. It's at Glenn Colton one G-L-E-N-N-C-O-L-T-O-N-1, uh, and um, you know, answering Twitter questions on fantasy baseball, putting out information, and uh, interacting with uh, the, the lots of people who just love fantasy baseball and fantasy football. Well, we're grateful to have had you. Thanks again for doing this. It was a great time, and I hope we'll get you back again this year. I'd be honored. Glenn Colton is a longtime Experts League player and multiple champion with his partner Rick Wolf. As you heard, you can catch them on Sirius XM Radio every Tuesday evening, 10 to midnight, Eastern Time. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are coming up, the Metric Minute and Minor League Minute, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Crowd to his feet with 
a catch. Which must have been an optical illusion to a lot of people. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. Stephen Nickrand looks at April leaders in base performance value in his Starting Pitchers Buyer's Guide. Matt Cederholm's Market Pulse column looks at speculative free agent pickups like Joe Smith, Josmil Pinto, Marcus Semyon, and more. And Bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis looks at pens where change might be coming, and maybe sooner than you think. Plus, we have our regular analysis of playing times, our facts and flukes performance validation coverage, buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, and so much more. Fantasy intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have minor league analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute and leading off the Metric Minute and telling us about hit percentage for batters. Here's analyst Ryan Bloomfield. Following up from last week's metric minute on how hit rate applies for pitchers, this week we'll take a look at how it's applied for hitters. As a quick refresher, hit rate is simply the percentage of balls hit into the field of play that fall for hits. The league average hit rate across baseball last season was 30%, so 30% of the balls put into play last season fell in for hits, with the exception of home runs, uh, which are always hits. Now, unlike pitchers, where in general the hit rate should regress near its mean of 30%, Hitters actually establish their own hit rate over each hitter's three-year baseline rather than the league-wide 30% average. A couple examples of this, uh, 2013, Freddie Freeman had a hit rate of 38%. Uh, that may seem high, and it is, but note that Freeman's career hit rate um, is now 34%, so we should expect that hit rate to fall down ne- near 34 which is Freeman's baseline. Uh, Don't expect it to repeat at 38, but also don't expect it to go all the way back down to 30. Another example is Jose Bautista. He consistently posts low hit rates. Over the past three seasons, Bautista has a 27% hit rate, which is in line with his overall career mark. So don't look at Bautista's 2013 hit rate of 26% and expect a big batting average boost. This is pretty much in line with his baseline, so we're not projecting a major change in batting average here. So when used properly, hit rate's an extremely valuable tool to gauge whether batting average is going to increase or decrease the following season by comparing each season's hit rate with each hitter's three-year baseline. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for the BaseballHQ.com website and talks about various Baseball HQ metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's the Minor League Minute, and with a look at Mets outfield prospect Brandon Nimmo, here's Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. In this week's edition of the Minor League Minute, we take a look at the New York Mets' Brandon Nimmo. The Mets knew they were rolling the dice when they selected Nimmo with the 13th overall pick in the very deep 2011 draft. Nimmo was from Wyoming, where they don't have high school baseball teams, and so was limited to playing American League and ball against less than stellar competition. He did play in a variety of showcase events and had plus raw athleticism, but still, taking Brandon Nimmo ahead of Jose Fernandez, Sonny Gray, and Colton Wong was clearly a risky move. Since being drafted, Nimmo has been slow to develop and has missed time with an assortment of nagging injuries, causing some to write him off as a draft bust. But that assessment looks to be a bit premature. Nimmo does have some length to his swing, but he controls the strike zone very well and has plus bat speed. He covers ground well in the center field and has a good throwing arm, but he'll likely move to a corner outfield spot once he reaches the majors. Despite good size and a quick left-handed stroke, Nimmo has shown limited power as a professional, hitting just 12 home runs and over 800 at-bats. In 2013, Nimmo missed more than a month of action with a bruised hand, but still managed to hit 273 with 71 walks, but he also struck out 131 times and posted a slugging percentage of just 359. Despite those rather pedestrian numbers, the Mets have kept the faith, and Nimmo finally seems to be putting it all together. In 29 games for St. Lucie in the Florida State League, the 21-year-old Nimmo is hitting 380 with a 5.07 on base percentage and a 500 slugging percentage. He's already walked 28 times and scored 33 runs, and if he can keep up that kind of production, he should be moved to the AA by midseason. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. 
Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Cole Begarapi, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports have looked at Toronto right-hander Marcus Stroman, a top prospect in that organization, as well as Tampa right-hander Nate Carnes and others. And you also want to check our minor league watch list every week, which looks at less heralded prospects who nonetheless have a clear path to the majors. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday Tout Edition for May the 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 31 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday Tout Show, Multiple Experts League champion and Fantasy Baseball legal expert, Glenn Colton. Always interesting to talk to Glenn, and make sure you check him out with Rick Wolf on their Sirius XM Fantasy Baseball show. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our Metric Minute commentator, and minor league analyst Rob Gordon had the minor league minute. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes to add to our 4.8 star rating. Also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our news and notes show featuring League Watch news reports, Todd Zola, matchups and master notes. And next Tuesday, our Tuesday Tout Edition will feature Major League Baseball Advanced Media Stats Director Corey Schwartz on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>